Our scripture for this morning is going to be coming from Galatians 1, 6 10. And it reads, I am astonished that you are, turned, are turning away so quickly from the one who called you by the grace of Christ to a different gospel. Not that there is a different gospel, except there are some who are disturbing you and wanting to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should proclaim a gospel to you contrary to what we proclaim to you, let him be accursed. As we said before, and now I say again, if anyone is proclaiming a gospel to you contrary to what you have received, let him be accursed. For am I now making appeal to people or to God? Or am I seeking to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a slave of Christ. Amen. Well, we began last week in our series uh, through Galatians that we are entitling a case for radical grace. Today we take up the second message in that series. As Paul begins in earnest the message that is his epistle to the Galatians and indeed his case for radical grace. As I was reading this passage over and over again this week, I was reminded of an incident in Turkey out on the Turkish hillside back in the summer of 2005. There were some shepherds out there who were allowing their sheep to graze in the early morning. And as they allowed their sheep to graze upon the hillside, the shepherds dismissed themselves so that they could enjoy a bit of breakfast. And as they were down below uh, and enjoying their, their breakfast, suddenly they look up and there is a sheep tumbling off the cliff. They look up and there goes another sheep tumbling off the cliff. And one after another, one after another, sheep after sheep goes tumbling over the cliff. In total, some 1,400 of their sheep tumbled off the cliff. 400 of those sheep died. And the only reason the other 1,000 didn't die is because they were cushioned by the first 400. One sheep following another sheep to its death. Isn't it interesting that the Bible refers to us as sheep? In fact, the Bible tells us, doesn't it, that we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Even as Christians, we, if we're honest, we know that we are prone to wander, prone to leave the sheepfold, prone to follow that which would and could ultimately destroy us. I think the songwriter headed right when he wrote, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God that I love. As we saw last week, the churches in Galatia, the ones to whom Paul initially writes this letter, they were being influenced to wonder from the God that they claim to have loved, to wonder from the gospel of God. There were those who had come in after the ministry of Paul and his associates, and they were seeking to undermine, and they were undermining the gospel of grace. They were teaching, in essence, a, that salvation was not only believing in Jesus, but it was also and necessarily living and worshiping like Jews. They were teaching, in essence, Jesus plus. Jesus plus circumcision. Jesus plus Sabbath keeping. Jesus plus the Old Testament laws. Jesus plus the Old Testament rituals. Jesus plus a Jewish lineage. Jesus plus. And in doing so, they were destroying the, the gospel witness and leading the churches in Galatia to ruin. But beloved, Jesus plus anything 
is not the gospel. For the gospel, as we are reminded, is Jesus only. Jesus alone. And in a real sense, Paul's Holy Spirit-inspired letter to the churches in Galatian is a note that says, Be careful, you are about to wander off the cliff of grace. You are about to follow these false shepherds off this cliff. The horror, beloved, the horror that those shepherds experienced and they felt as they saw their sheep falling to their death one after another is nothing in comparison to the angst that Paul is feeling when he is hearing about the sheep of God potentially going off the cliff to their own eternal destruction. He is horrified. He is amazed. And we see this in our text. Paul hears of the Galatian Christians turning away from the gospel and embracing that which is no gospel. And it's a vision of sheep tumbling off the cliff into the abyss. And he is astonished. He is amazed. He is indignant. And this is what our text shows us this morning. It shows us this apostolic amazement. It shows us this this apostolic amazement that causes the beloved apostle to, to invoke this apostolic curse, doesn't it? And in the midst of that, he pronounces his own apostolic assurance, his own apostolic approval. Now, I must admit, before we go any further, that uh, there is a lot in these few verses, and I am quite confident that we won't get through all of them this, this week. So I am confident that if you come back next week, we will finish this message. But there is enough in this message this week, hopefully, to whet your appetite for next week, but even more to challenge us this week. To remember the uniqueness of the gospel of grace in Jesus Christ. The first point I want us to see is this apostolic amazement. How the apostle is amazed. You notice something. If you are a student of scripture or particularly of the New Testament epistles, you will notice there's something different here. Paul does not begin this letter with his usual gracious sentiments that we see in all of his other letters. He, he, he doesn't begin this correspondence as he begins all his other correspondences with praise and thanksgiving. If you go and read in Philippians, Paul begins on a positive note. As he writes to the churches there in Philippi, he says in chapter 1 and verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy. That's what he says to the Philippians. Notice what he says to the Colossians. Chapter 1 and verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. How gracious. How thankful. 
This is even true when he writes to the Corinthians. And we know what a messed up motley crew the Corinthians were. And notice what he says to the Corinthians in chapter 1 and verse 4 of 1 Corinthians. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge. Over and over again, the apostle writes to these churches and he begins with thanksgiving. He begins with grace. He begins with a praise to God for the faith of these churches, except when he writes to the Galatians. But when he writes to the Galatians, he doesn't give thanks. He doesn't offer praise. He only offers his amazement. He offers his disappointment. How does he begin? I am astonished. Tell us how you really feel, Paul. How are things going? How's the family? How's the guys? I am astonished. The word there literally means amazed. It means I am in wonder. I am in unbelief. It is a typical reaction that the Bible has in the response to the miraculous, to the inexplicable. In, in, Mark chapter, in Matthew chapter 15 and verse 31, after Jesus had performed all of these wonderful miracles and the crowds have given witness to the miracles that Jesus performed, Notice what the Bible says in verse 31 of chapter 15 of Matthew. So that the crowd wondered. The crowd was astonished. The crowd was amazed when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing. They were astonished because this was inexplicable. Hadn't seen this before. This was unheard of. This was crazy. The same word is given in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. When the Holy Spirit falls upon the disciples and they begin to speak in other languages and everyone miraculously hears and understands all of these different languages in their own hearing and language. And notice what it says, chapter 2, verse 7. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? This is crazy. It's amazing. This is astonishing. Is this sentiment that Paul has when he hears that the Galatians are turning away from the gospel of grace? He is saying, are you kidding? It's like the times when my wife calls me and she tells me something that the girls did. And I said, she did what? Remember the time she called me one time and uh, she said, you will not believe what happened today. And I said, what? Tony hit a golf ball through the front window. I said, he did what? How do you hit a golf ball through the front window? Except you're doing something that you shouldn't be doing. <laughs> Amazed, astonished. And here is Paul. Beloved, he is amazed and do understand that this is not a golf ball through the window. He is amazed because they are turning from the gospel that has saved them. They, have, they are turning from their only 
hope. They are turning from that one thing that stands between them and eternal damnation. They are turning from that one person who is the buttress between them and the abyss. And he is saying, you're doing what? He's amazed. He's amazed. And there's two aspects to this amazement that I want us to see this morning. First, I want us to see the point of Paul's amazement. And then I want to share with you the paradox of this amazement. First, I want us to see the point of this amazement. The point of this amazement is why Paul is amazed. And he is amazed because, as he says, they so quickly turned. How did they turn? They turned quickly. They wasted no time. Now, we are not told the time frame. We are not told how long It was between the time that the Apostle Paul had been in their midst and had been sharing and teaching and introducing them to the gospel of grace. And then they're turning away unto false teachers, away from the true gospel to a different gospel. We are not told that time frame, but in Paul's mind, it's too quick. It's just too quick. They turn rather quickly. Paul is saying, the microphone is still smoking from when I was there preaching. This is too quick. You know what Jesus says in the parable of the sower? In in, in Mark chapter 4 and and verse 15, after he tells the parable of the sower, He begins to explain the parable, and he says, And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. Immediately he comes. This is Paul as he tells the the Ephesians in chapter 4 and verse 14, that they are not to be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. And that happens because, beloved, as soon as the word is sown, the object of the enemy is to sweep in and to steal that word immediately after it has been sown. And he seeks to do, to do it as quick as possible. You know that is his aim. You know that is part of his schemes. That whatever you receive from the Lord, the enemy wants to swoop in and immediately begin to undermine it. God gives you joy and the enemy wants to come in right away and undermine the joy. God grants you patience, and immediately the enemy wants to come in and undermine the patience. God grants you contentment, and immediately Satan wants to swoop in and undermine the contentment. God grants you faith and trust in him, and immediately the enemy wants to come in and get you to doubt the word of God. Isn't that what he did with Adam and Eve? God had given them everything. The glories of Eden, personal, intimate relationship with him, contentment, joy, fulfillment, and immediately the enemy comes in and says, you know God isn't really good. You know, God really doesn't want what's best for you. He's holding all the best for himself. Because what the enemy wants to do, beloved, is to take whatever God gives you. And he wants to undermine it. 
so that you and I begin to think that God really isn't that good. That he really isn't true to his word. That all that he really says and promises is not true. And this is what happened to the Galatians. Paul had sown among them the gospel of grace in Christ Jesus. And immediately the enemy has come in to undermine the word that has been sown. Don't let him do it, beloved. Don't be ignorant of his devices, as the Bible says. Know that immediately as the word is being sown in your heart, the enemy wants to distract you and turn you away from that. Don't let him do it. Dig in. Know that there is no other word. Another word that comes in Christ. There is no other way but the way that is revealed in Christ. And Paul is saying, it is amazing. As soon as the church doors open, you turn away. It's not an astonishing that they turned away so quickly in the matter of time. That quickly also carries with it an understanding that they turn so easily. That they turned away so Easily. Beloved, it was it was just too easy. The false teachers came in and they undermined the word of God. And it is as if the churches, the Christians in Galatian and Galatia put up no resistance at all. It just seemed too easy. One sheep went off the cliff, and the next one began to follow, and the next one, and the next one, and the next one, and the next one, and it just seemed so easy. And the apostle is amazed at how quickly and how easily they turned. But notice, notice, not only... Is he amazed at how they turn so quickly? Notice that he is also amazed at from whom they turn. They turn from God. Notice what he says. He says, I am astonished that you have so quickly deserted or turned from him who called you. From him who called you. Now, the temptation, the temptation was to believe that Paul had called them, and thus they were turning away from Paul. And that, no doubt, is what the false teachers were saying. You don't want to believe Paul. You know, yeah, his message is okay, but it's not sufficient for living in the higher life, to going deep into the things of God, to uncover the secret things of God. God, you can use Paul for a moment, but just discard him if you want to go into the deeper, secret, hidden messages of the gospel. And Paul tells them, I'm astonished that you have deserted, not me, but realize that you are turning away from him who called you, and that, beloved, is God. Paul says, I'm amazed that you're turning away from God because it is God who has called you. You might have heard me speaking, but it was the power of God that changed your heart. It was the Spirit of God that spoke to your inner person. It's the Spirit of God that opened your ears and open your blinded eyes and soften your heart. It is God who calls. So Paul says, I am amazed, I am astonished that you're turning from God. But God is the one they were deserting, not Paul. 
God is the one who called them into the grace of Jesus Christ, not Paul. Get this, beloved, and don't miss it. Paul is saying, in essence, that if you don't have God, you don't have the gospel. You get God wrong, you're going to get the gospel wrong. And without God, there is no gospel. And without the gospel, there is no grace. Therefore, without God, there is no grace. And you are deserting God, he says. Because God is the issue. God is always the issue. And when they were turning away, they may have thought they were turning away from the teachings of Paul. And Paul reminds them, no. You're turning away from God when God is your only hope. You're turning away from God. And notice what he says they did. And in turning away from God, they turned to another gospel. Because you know that's what happens. When you turn from God, you don't just turn into a vacuum. You don't just turn into nothing. But when you turn from God, you replace God. When you turn from the truth, you replace it with error. Nobody doesn't just turn from God. What they do is they turn from God, and then they find the satisfaction that only comes from God. They find it in other things. And other things become their God. That's what happens. That's what happens to some of us in here this morning. As you have turned from God and sought to live your life as you want to live it, you have not only turned from God, but you have then turned to yourself and your own iniquities. Because you don't just turn from God and then go live. No. There's only two ways, beloved. There's the way of worship of the true God unto eternal life, and there's the way of worship of yourself and other things unto eternal damnation. There is no third option. And this is what Paul is saying. You are turning away from God. And those who have come in here have convinced you that what you're doing is turning to a truer gospel. And Paul says, no. He's turning to a different gospel, and in fact, it's no gospel at all. It is no gospel at all. Well, he says in verse 7, doesn't he? You have turned to a different gospel. Then he says, well, let me be clear. <laughs> there is no other gospel. There is no other gospel. Why? Because the gospel is like God, beloved. There is only one. True and living. And though we may speak in terms and talk in terms of there being other gods and other gospels for the, for the sake of distinguishing truth from error, we know that there really is only one God. There is no other gods. And there is no other good news. There's only one God, and there's only one gospel. There's only one good news. I think it's important then at this point for us to once again define what the gospel is so that we are clear, so everyone knows what is the gospel. Well, the gospel can be nuanced in several ways to include several various aspects, as the Bible does in several areas. But let's just define it in terms of this epistle to the Galatians. When Paul says gospel, what does he mean here? He means this, beloved. The gospel is the good news that God, through Jesus Christ alone has redeemed us from our sins and made us right with God. 
Can I say that again? The gospel is this. It is that good news that God, through Jesus Christ alone, has redeemed us from our sins and has made us right with God. There is only one way to be redeemed from your sins. It is through Jesus Christ. There is only one way to be right with God, and it is through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. That is what Paul means. And that is what we have to understand. That's what we're working with here. G.K. Chesterton said this. He says, there are many, many angles at which one can fall, but only one angle at which one can stand upright. There are many, 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 many ways to get the gospel wrong, there is only one way of getting it right. Many, many ways, beloved. There's only one way to get it right. Paul is going to tell the Galatians over and over again, it's Jesus. It's Jesus only. Only, only, only Christ. And beloved, there are other gospels. Just for the sake of argument, there are other gospels. And Paul says here, you've turning to another gospel, to a different gospel, parentheses, I know there is no other gospel, but bear with me. There are other gospels. And it's a safe bet, beloved, that whenever there is an adjective in front of the word gospel, it's a safe bet that you probably got a different gospel. And we see it all the time. You may have heard them. This idea of the social gospel. Again, whenever there is this adjective placed in front of the word gospel, it's a, best, it's a good safe bet that there is something inherently wrong in that message of the gospel. So you got things like the social gospel. The idea that Jesus died for your economic and social freedom and uplifting. That Jesus died so that you can have a fair working wage. That he died so that you can have clothes on your back. He died so that you can have the right to vote. It's a social gospel. But then oftentimes we hear things like the prosperity gospel. That Jesus died to make you rich. That Jesus died to make you wealthy. That Jesus died and, and therefore has freed you from all sickness and disease. A prosperity gospel. Or you may have heard of the self-esteem gospel. And this idea that Jesus died so that you can feel better about yourself. To uplift your esteem and your own estimation of yourself. So that you can look yourself in the mirror and perceive yourself as really not being all that bad. He died so that you could lift your own self up by your own bootstraps. Self-esteem gospel. Or perhaps you've heard of the positive thinking gospel. Has Jesus died so that you can live and have your best life? No. It was Philip Ryken who says in his commentary on Galatians, the most dangerous teachers are the ones who preach a different Christ but still call him Jesus. Beloved, they're out there. They're out there. From Norman Vincent Peale to Robert Schuller, from Catherine Coleman to Kenneth Copeland, from Creflo Dollar to Clarence McClendon to Joel Osteen, and on and on and on and on. And all of these and others are purveyors of another, indeed a different gospel. And they have always taught Jesus. It's just Jesus plus. Jesus plus prosperity. 
Jesus plus self-esteem. Jesus plus tongues. Jesus plus baptism. Jesus plus the Ten Commandments. Jesus plus the Sabbath worship. Jesus plus over and over and over again. Here today, Jesus plus America the Beautiful. Jesus plus black power. Jesus plus. Jesus plus. You know what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 2? Tells the Corinthians, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. If you want Jesus plus, get Jesus plus Jesus. Paul says, I got Jesus plus his crucifixion. Jesus plus his cross. Jesus plus his resurrection. Jesus plus his ascension. Jesus plus his coming again. If you want Jesus, get Jesus plus Jesus. Said, I don't know anything but Jesus. Oh, yeah, plus his crucifixion. That's it. This is the point of his amazement that they would so quickly turn to a gospel that is no gospel. There is no good news in that. My beloved, the point of, the, of his amazement reminds me this morning of the paradox of this amazement. You know what a paradox is? A paradox is a statement that on the surface seems to be contradictory, but has the potential and very well could be true. Things like jumbo shrimp. You know, just think about that. Someone has said that youth is wasted on the young. I think that's true. <laughs> um, oh, how about uh, someone said, it's getting late early. What? <laughs> I think that could be true. But here's the paradox of Paul's amazement. And don't miss this. That the, that as easy as it is to fall away from the gospel of grace, it is actually the most difficult thing to do. As easy as it is to fall away from the gospel of grace, it is actually the most difficult thing to do. That's right. That's right, that's right Jaina. That, yeah. Roll your eyes up there like, Really? And the reason that is true, beloved, the reason that is true is because walking away for sheep to go off the cliff is very easy, except that God has put in your place, in front of you, these gracious monuments of his goodness to stop you at every turn and you have to get over them. Want to know what they are? I'm glad you asked. The Lord has been so gracious to us. He has put these amazing safeguards of goodness in our way. And for you to fall from the gospel of grace, you have to stumble over these. And the first one is that you have to take lightly the word of God. Do you know that the goodness of God should be seen to us in his word, read and preached all the time? This is how he hedges us in. He hedges us in by his word as it is read and as it is preached to us. For the Bible says concerning the Bible in Psalm 119 and verse 105. 
Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. That God has lightened the path on how you may walk and follow after him. His goodness as his grace. Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and, and verse 16, that all scripture, all the Bible, it's inspired by God. And it's not just inspired, beloved, but it is profitable. It is useful. It is advantageous for teaching and reproof and correction and training. That God gives us his inspired word so that word would reproof us, that word would, would, would convict us, that word would train us, that word would encourage us, that word would keep us in the grace. And for you to go off that cliff, you really have to take lightly the word that is preached. You have to convince yourself that it's really not a light unto your path. You have to convince yourself that it's really not inspired. You have to convince yourself that it's really not the word of God to you offering correction and reproof and training and encouragement. You really have to convince yourself that all that is not true in order to go away. From the gospel of grace. But not only has he put that in our, in our path as a, as a mark of goodness, he also has put in the, the communion of the saints. Do you know that in order to fall away from the gospel of grace, you have to forsake the assembly and the communion of the saints? You, you, really, you really do, for God has given the family of God to us to safeguard our souls. For the command not to forsake the assembly and the gathering of the church is a clear command from Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 25. But it has. It has good reasons for it. And the reasons, I'm beloved, is that sheep by themselves become easy prey. The reason is, is that a coal off from the rest of the fire quickly burns out. And to fall away from the gospel of grace, you have to forsake the assembly of church because God has given to the church, the treasure of the gospel. This is where it ends. The church, the Bible says, is a pillar and the foundation of the truth. You do understand that God has not given you the Bible to read and take and read it all on your own. You know, the Bible was written to the church. The Bible is written to churches. The Word of God comes to churches, to the collection of the saints. It is the church that has been given this great deposit and has been told to guard it. And the further you move away from the assembly and the family of God, the further you remove yourself from rightly understanding and living in and upon the gospel of the grace of Jesus Christ. And you see the church is the goodness of God to you to keep you from falling away from grace. It's his word. It's the family. It's the assembly of God. It's the sacraments. It's what he's given us to keep us from falling from the gospel. It's the sacraments. 
Every time, every, every time we come to the sacraments, the Lord's table and baptism, they are reminders to us that the grace of God is ours. And that's why they are referred to as means of grace, because they renew us in the grace that not only saves us, but keeps our hearts and minds on Christ. What the Bible says concerning your baptism in Colossians chapter 2 and, and verse 12. That our baptism should remind us that we have been buried with Christ and we have been raised with him again unto eternal life, unto new life in Christ. And every time you recall your baptism, it should be a recalling that you have been made new in Christ. Have you been raised up with him to be seated with him in heavenly glory? And all that you need and all that you have is sufficiently supplied for you in Christ Jesus. And every time we witness a baptism, that is what we are witnessing. A beautiful reminder. And at one point, we died with Christ. For just as Christ was risen from the dead unto newness of life, so we too now have been raised unto new life in Christ. That's why Paul could say, if you have been raised with Christ and Christ is in the heavens, then set your mind on the things that are above. And your baptism, every time, you remember it. You think about it. It should remind you of that. Well, not only our baptism, beloved, but the Lord's table. Every time we come to the Lord's table, it should be a visible reminder to us of all that Christ has done for us. His body broken for us. His blood shed for the remission of our sins. In fact, Jesus himself says, do this in remembrance of me. Remembering what? Remembering that my body was broken. Remember that my blood was shed. Remember that your sins are forgiven. Remember that I'm come, I promise to come back and receive you unto myself. Remember these things. For these things that keep you from going off the cliff. Chasing after another gospel that is no gospel at all. Lastly, he gives us the precious gift of Holy Spirit, doesn't he? The indwelling presence of Holy Spirit. And if you're going to fall from the gospel of grace, you have to spend all your days quenching Holy Spirit. Quenching, quenching Holy Spirit. And here is the most precious and the gracious gift of all. God gives us Christ. Christ gives us Holy Spirit whereby we live and love in Him. And whenever our hearts begin to wander from the fold, the first thing that happens is the Spirit of God convicts us in our inner being. Convicts us of our wandering convicts us of our sin, and he sounds that beacon call. Turn back to Christ. Turn again to him. And this is why the Bible says in 1 Thessalonians 5 and 19, do not quench the Spirit. Don't ignore don't stifle his work and ignore his leadings and his proddings and his directives. This is God being gracious to you in your life, calling you back to himself over and over again. Beloved, you see that? You see why it's really a difficult thing to do? You have to quench the spirit. You have to, you have to neglect the sacraments. 
you have to forsake the assembly. You have to take the word of God lightly and trample it underfoot. And all that makes it difficult, but guess what? I am astonished that people do that every day. They do it every day. The word that is preached, they think nothing of it. They miss church and don't give a rip. The sacraments are handed out to them and they no more meditate on it than they do their morning coffee. And the Holy Spirit speaks to their lives and they every day ignore his leading. Amazing. Amazing. This is why, this is why, beloved, every day should be our prayer. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily, daily I'm constrained to be. Lord, let your goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wonder, Lord. Lord, I feel it. Prone to lead the God I love. But take my heart. Lord, take it and seal it. Seal it for your court spot. Seal it. Because all around me, I see wandering. Seal me, Lord. Keep me in your grace. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your church. Thank you for the sacraments. Thank you for your spirit. Seal me, Lord. Keep me in your grace. Beloved, I'm no different than you. I, I like new things. Just like you. Tell the truth. You like new things. I like the new car smell. Had had one in a while, but I remember that new car smell. I like the feel of fresh new carpet. Isn't that right, Jamila? I like the feel of new shoes. Isn't that right, honey? I like the look of brand new golf balls. Just makes you think you're going to play well today. <laughs> I like new things. There's one thing I don't want new, beloved. I don't want a new gospel. Of all the things I might like new, I want my gospel old. I want the gospel that Jews said has once and for all been delivered to the saints. I want the gospel that was good enough for mama. That was good enough for Paul. That was good enough for Silas. I want that gospel because I know that gospel is good enough for me. Beloved, if they come with to you with a new gospel, if it's new, it's not true. Because if it's true, it's not new. I don't need a new gospel. Give me that old time religion. Good enough for mama. It's good enough for me. We'll take up the rest of this passage next week. Let's pray.